All right. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this afternoon. So thankful again to be with you, with you all. And we're looking at a passage today that I think will be an encouragement to our souls and a challenge as well. Let's read it in 1 Peter chapter 3, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. It says this, If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you join me in prayer as we uh, come before the Lord? Father in heaven, you have given to us blessing upon blessing in Christ. Even as we've looked into 1 Peter, we know the blessing you provided to us in the new birth that we've been granted. On top of that, you've given to us a family, an earthly family here, but one that will transcend and go into the heavenly places. You've given to us an inheritance that is ours, that is preserved for us in the heavenly place. You've then promised that you will keep us safe until that very day in which your son returns to take us back to be with him. These are all blessings from your hand, undeserved by us. And so we thank you. And this morning we experience one more blessing, and that is the fellowship of your people and the preaching of your word. This is your word, not mine, Father. And so I ask that you would take your word among your people and make the changes that you desire in their hearts, in my heart, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you enjoy being afraid? Seems like a weird question, and yet our culture apparently does. Uh, have you noticed how many movies you see advertisements for in which it appears that the whole point of the movie is to really make you just frighteningly afraid? And people say, oh, I can't wait to go and spend money to do that. We're approaching one of the weirdest things that I can think of. Uh, we're approaching the Halloween time. And, you know, the Halloween time, that, that in itself is a little bit odd, what, what we tend to do. But then, at the same time, what ends up happening is people pay for these things called haunted houses. You ever heard of these things? Maybe you've gone to them. I'm not sure why you would pay for someone else to scare you. But apparently, people in great droves do so. People love being afraid. But here's the question that we need to ask. Should we, as Christians, experience fear? And I think there are a lot of people who would answer that question in the negative. They would say, no, in fact, the believer should never live in fear. Fear is outside the realm of being a believer. And part of the reason someone might say this actually comes straight from Scripture. Listen with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, 
God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so some have taken that to mean that there is to be no, no aspect of fear uh, for which we are to live in this life. But of course, we turn to a passage like the one that sits before us this afternoon. And you notice verse 17, it really has one command. In fact, this whole section, verses 17 all the way down to verse 21, if you were to read it in the original language, in the Greek, you would see that it's one sentence. Just one sentence. And it has one main command. And that's this. Fear God. So we have to, this afternoon, try and understand exactly what Peter means when he tells us that we must fear God. Now, if you were to open a dictionary and you were to look up the word fear from the Greek, so we're talking about the, the, the word there that the Bible uses, there really are two definitions that you'll find in almost every dictionary that pertains to the Bible. What does fear mean? And there's two, two aspects. The first is to experience a great anxiety, a shaking, a trembling, a true fear. And we see this, a number of passages in Scripture. Think with me in Matthew 14. Do you remember when the disciples are on the sea? Jesus has said to them, hey, cross on the other side. I'm going to pray for a little while, and then I'll come join you on the other side. They must have been a bit confused. How's he going to get to the other side? But in any case... Let's go to the other side. They start going to the other side, and all of a sudden, this huge storm comes upon them. And in the midst of this huge storm, they're dumping out buckets of water. They're, they're quite concerned over what's going to happen to them. And lo and behold, what do they see walking upon the water? But the visage of a man, and they think it's a ghost, and it says that they were filled with terror, with fright. The word, same word Peter's using here, fear. They were filled with fear. Or imagine the guards who've been tasked with standing before an empty tomb. I can't imagine. You probably signed up for this one, right? Um, you know, all right, the guy's in the tomb, and I'm just going to stand here. Okay, I'll take that shift. And so as they stand taking guard of this tomb on the third day, an angel appears in bright clothing, and they shake in fear. So much anxiety and fear they experience that they actually pass out. Or one more reference, Revelation 11, 11. You recall at the end of time, after, during the tribulation period, uh, there are a couple of witnesses that God calls forth. And the world kills these witnesses. And then they do something that basically is Christmas. They're sharing gifts with one another. They're celebrating the death of these, these two witnesses. And in the midst of this celebration... In the midst of the party, something ruins it beyond imagination. The two men stand up. They're raised from the dead. And Scripture tells us that those who witnessed this event were filled with fear, anxiety, dread as they saw this. Is that what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17? In some sense, we might say yes, because I want you to notice what he says. He tells us, that we ought to do this because we serve a judge, a father who's a judge, and he's going to judge impartially. 
Uh, the experience of most people when they go before a judge is a little bit of anxiety and fear. How's he going to judge on my account? But I want you to notice that the word actually has another definition as well. It can simply mean to live in reverence. And indeed, the book of 1 Peter suggests that this is the more common use that Peter makes of this word. Uh, If we were to look in chapter 2, verse 18, you'll note that Peter says to the slaves, slaves, reverence your masters. He uses the word fear, but I don't think he's saying stand quaking in fear of your masters. He's saying instead in this relationship in which he's superior over you, then you ought to show him reverence. Or how about wives to their husbands? Peter tells wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, to reverence their husbands. And again, I don't think he means to fear them in the trembling, shaking sort of way. Finally, Peter tells us, when you are responding to somebody who asks you about the faith that you have, respond with reverence to them. And I think his point is this. You realize that you are speaking to an eternal being who will live forever. And they deserve honor. They deserve the honor of a proper response. So reverence them in the way that you respond to them. Now, coming back to the passage we're dealing with, which of these two is the appropriate reference? Because, of course, that second one seems to Uh, seems to fit quite well, especially what Peter says later. Because earlier he says, fear because you're, you're serving a father who's a judge. And later he says, reverence because of all the good things that God has done for you. I tend to think that dictionaries... They, they have to delineate exact definitions and divide definitions, but sometimes words jump out of the boxes that we try and put them in. Words are messy things. And I think what Peter's doing here is he's using this word with a, a depth of it that if we take either one of these, we lose Peter's meaning. But if... We grasp both at the same time, I think we pick up what Peter's saying. In fact, most com- a number, anyways, of modern English versions will, instead of saying something like, live in fear, they will say, live in reverential fear. And do you see what they've done there? They've taken both of those concepts and they put them together, live in reverence, but live in fear. And here's my suggestion for, for us this afternoon. Here's what Peter's doing. He's saying there, are, there is a sense in which we ought to stand before God and we ought to fear. And there's a sense in which we ought to stand before God and we ought to reverence the incredible nature of his good kindness towards us. And those two things are not opposed to one another. So let me try and prove that to you this, this afternoon. So here's the central command. Peter says, fear God. So what does he mean by reverentially fear God? It, it of course, has the sense, I think, mostly of what the Old Testament tells us. You, you know, one of the key themes of the Old Testament is that when you come to God, how should you, how should you relate to him? 
You must fear God. And that language of fearing God throughout the Old Testament fits both of these categories. In fact, it can't simply be the experience great anxiety. And, and you know the passages I'm talking about. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So he, it, do you want to have knowledge? Then here's where you start, by fearing God. And again, we immediately think, well, quake in fear of him? But scripture tells me he's gracious to me. So then how do I relate? Well, you'll notice Exodus twenty twenty. I think, is one of the most helpful ways for us to think through what it means to fear God. Notice what Moses says, and this is in reference to what God is saying. In Exodus 20, they've just come out of Egypt. They've seen God's incredible, mighty hand at work. And he says this, do not fear. God has come to test you. That is, what you're going through right now is a test. But don't fear. And here's why he's testing you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, wait a second. I thought you just said, don't fear. But he's doing this so that I would fear. And the sense here has to then be distinct. What he's saying is that there's a different type of fear than a shaking and trembling. You'll remember in Exodus 20, they're standing at the bottom of the mountain. There's fire coming down on the mountain. There's earthquakes and, and there's, there's flames. It, it, it's a frightening experience. But he says, don't fear. He's testing you so that you would come to fear him. So what do we mean then when we talk about this fear? I put a definition up here that I think captures the essence of what it means to fear God. The fear of the Lord is a robust knowledge of God. It is to know him truly. It is to know him as he is. And it leads us to trembling trust and obedience. For as we stand in awe of him, we are compelled to follow him. I think sometimes there are there are false depictions we have of our God in our minds. And sometimes I think that there's this idea that if we stood before God, that we'd be able to stand before God. But have you ever read what happens to any person who stands in the presence of God? Do they stand with straight back? They fall on their face in, in front of one who is holy, who is just, who is all-powerful, you know this one has literally all power in the heavens and the earth. He actually spoke and the world came to be. And one day he will speak and the world will cease to be. That's the power of this God. Not only does he have all this power, but standing in his presence, you know his holiness. He is perfect and you are not. Do you remember Isaiah standing in the very presence of God? What does he say? My lips are unclean. I don't tend to think that Isaiah was a guy who was prone to using all kinds of bad language and had all kinds of problems. But when he saw the purity of God, in that reflection, he saw how inept he was, how dirty he was. And in the same way, when we, st when we understand our God, there is a natural fear 
that comes about. And yet it is tempered by all of the incredible promises that he has given to us. We stand before the one who has all power in the heavens and the earth, but he has promised that that power will be used for our good. Oh, oh. And, and so as we experience this, we know him. And there is a natural fear, and yet that fear is turned to trust and obedience. As we come to know him then, that trembling turns to trust. And then when we trust, we begin to say, I must obey this one because he has all power, because he has my good in mind, and I must follow him. This is the sense I think we are capturing here in First Peter. He is saying we must fear God. How do we think more about this command of, of fearing God? I think that there are two illustrations that really capture the essence of this uh, that help us quite a bit. One, I've just been reading recently the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and by reading, I mean I'm working and I'm listening to it on, on Audible. And I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, but probably one of my top ten scenes is this scene in which Lucy, one of the little girls who comes to Narnia, it's an imaginary land, but there's a lion depicted in this land who is to represent God. Actually, to represent Christ. And Lucy learns, when she comes back into the wardrobe and into Narnia, she learns that Aslan is back. And that there's hope because Aslan is here. And she's talking to a beaver. All right, just, just stick with me here. Uh, she's talking to a beaver. And the beaver says, Aslan is here. Aslan, the great lion, is here. And she says these words. It's so innocent words. And yet I think captures so much. She says, is he safe? <laughs> and the beaver responds, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's omnipotent, but he's good, but he's good. And man, that gets me every time because that is our God. He is all powerful and yet he's good and he is indeed our king. And so we stand before him and we must fear him. But there's a second way in which, and I don't have a slide on it, but there's a second way and I think it's embedded in the passage we're looking at here. Notice what he does in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father, then live out the time of your sojourn, the time of your journey to the place you're longing for, the, the place that's promised to you, the heavenly land, this time of sojourning, live in fear if you call on him as father. So here's embedded in this is the command that we have a father or we call him father. And here's the second illustration, I think, Peter's embedded in this text for us. And it's going to be, it, it's a challenging one for some of us, but for others of us, it's not. If you had a loving father who cared deeply for you, disciplined you like a father should, and loved you with all of his heart, then you knew that you had a father who you could stand before and you knew he had authority. And you knew he loved you enough to discipline you. And so there's a little bit of fear as you stood before him that you did not want to disobey. And, and, 
encounter the consequences, is how, perhaps I'll put it. Encounter the consequences of unbelief or of, or of disobedience. You, you didn't want to do that, and yet you knew at the same time that he loved you. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, you call on him as father, he's your father. And he is a good father. And yet, he will come as judge. So, as we've developed what it means to fear God, I think we should get into why Peter tells us we should do this. So this is what it means to fear God. Why should we fear God? Peter tells us two reasons. The first is this. Because God is an impartial judge. That's exactly what he says in verse 17. If you call on him as father, who, note this, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. You'll notice up on the screen, if you can see that clearly, I'm not sure you can. But in the picture there, in the background, you have Lady Justice. This is a Greek conception, but it's very ancient. And it depicts Lady Justice as the one who holds the scales in her hands. And the scales are the scales of justice. The idea is that the good and the bad are weighed on this scale. And that when you come to find justice, based upon the merits of the case, justice will be meted out. But you'll notice two other characteristics that always pertain to Lady Wisdom. The second is this, she has a blindfold on. And the blindfold represents the fact that she does not take into account anything except what has been done. She doesn't look with any form of impartiality. And the final thing she has that's characteristic of Lady Wisdom is, or the Lady Justice is she has a sword in her hand. She is ready to judge those who who in fact fall short. Of course, Lady Justice is an ideal that from Greco-Roman times all the way to today, we would hope that our justice system would embrace. But let's be honest. You and I both know, we all know, that our justice system has not been what it should be. And judges are not always impartial. Indeed, the Old Testament tells us, warns us numerous times in the Proverbs that judges must not be partial to either the rich or the poor. And so one way we find out that people are partial is by looking at the finances of someone. And we, we automatically know what it means for a judge to be partial towards the rich. And we've heard stories of it, that they because they're going to get a bribe, or because they know that they're going to benefit in some way, they're partial towards the rich. Or, the scriptures warn that the judge must not be partial to the poor. Must instead mete out justice fairly. The scripture tells us that God is an impartial judge. He does not care about the economic power of a person. The President of the United States of America and the person who's never lived in a house will both stand before the very same bar of justice. The Queen of England, who just passed away and and had 
from all I understand, a very good testimony of actually knowing the Lord, will stand before God as judge, just like any other person who dies in that country. Do you see? Because there is no partiality with God. He cares not for your position in life. And one day, every one of us sitting in this room will stand before the bar of God's justice. And whatever position and whatever else we have, he's impartial to it. What else, what other partiality do we find? We find, especially within the United States, the ethnicity of a person has been a significant problem throughout the justice system. And you'll note that throughout the Old Testament, in fact, there was this idea that God would be partial to a certain group of people, a certain ethnicity. And yet, do you remember the preaching of John the Baptist? He comes to the Jews and he says this, the axe is laid already at the root of the tree. And if you do not bear fruit for repentance, the axe is about to swing. And then he says this, and do not say to me, we have Abraham as father. For God can raise up from these rocks children for himself. The application for us, I think, is pretty straightforward as well. Your heritage matters not. You come from a family of believers. That does not mean that things will go well for you on the day of judgment. You've always been among believers. You've been in the church. You have all of these things. God does not take those things into account. You see, God is an impartial judge. What then does he take into account? The text explicitly tells us. The text tells us that he takes our works into account. And this is what he says. I judge according to your deeds. Notice he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, a lot of people get uncomfortable when they read that. Because you and I, if, if you've been here for some time, you've heard a gospel of grace that suggests that God will never save someone because they've done good works. And I'm going to maintain that's completely true. Nevertheless, every time, capture this, Every time the scripture talks about God's judgment, it is always according to works. Every time. I'll give you a couple of examples, and then I'll explain how this works. Here's Paul in Romans chapter 2. He says, God will repay each person according to, note these words in italics, what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who reject the truth, they follow evil, there's wrath and anger. Paul's pretty straightforward. Those who seek after honor and, and good, they'll receive eternal life. But those who seek after these negative things will, in fact, receive eternal judgment. How about the words of Jesus himself? Matthew 16 Jesus speaking, he says, I, the Son of Man, am going to come in my Father's glory with my angels, and then I will reward each person according to what they have done. Notice that last line, according to what they have done. And then the very end of the book of Revelation, as Jesus is stating that he's about to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to judge. Here's what he says, I'm coming soon. 
my reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. How do we balance the claim that we must have, that that the judgment is going to be according to works, with the idea that salvation is based on grace? And here's what I'd say. I think there's actually an easy solution to this. And that's this. No person will ever be saved by their works. But no person who's saved will not have good works. Or in other words, every person who's saved will have good works. No person will ever be saved by their works, but every person who's saved will have good works. They will evidence that salvation. Because here's here's what Peter's already told us. If you experience the gospel of grace, you know what happens? You are changed internally. You are not the same person you used to be. And that means you're different. Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, wait a second now. What about the man on the cross? He didn't have any good deeds, but didn't he? Well, I think he did. As he, sat, as he stood upon the cross, you remember the two passages that talk about his his mocking, and yet he believes. And when he believes, he no longer mocks. There was a change, even in his life. And so for those who have been saved for some time, should there not be evidence of grace? Let me just share with you the logic of the passage, or the logic of the idea. It's this, having a does not make you B, but if you are B, then you have A. And and just fill it in this way. Having good works does not make you a Christian. There are a lot of people who have good works. They're not Christians. But if you are a Christian, then you have good works. Let me give you a couple of other examples that perhaps help us to think through this. Uh, One of the... uh, One one show I, I watched not long ago... And maybe I shared this with you, I can't recall, but, but it, it's of a climber who loves to climb the hardest rock faces you can imagine. But after he climbs them, then he decides he climbs again without any safety gear and without anyone else with him. And he just goes up with a bag of powder to, to put on his fingers and he climbs. And he talks about in there that uh, the people who do this Uh, Every person he knows who does this share this one characteristic. They can stand at the edge of a cliff, look over, and feel absolutely no fear. I could stand 50 feet from that cliff and feel fear. All right? But but they have no fear as as they look over this cliff. So think with me. Having love for danger does not make you a free solo mountain climber. Because there are a lot of people who have no fear of danger. They can actually stand at the edge of a cliff. They can look over and say, yeah, that that doesn't make me afraid. But if you are a free solo mountain climber, if you're doing this, then I guarantee you, you have a love for danger. And you don't have a fear that, that, uh, that, that comes alongside of that. And so there's another illustration, or, or perhaps I can put this one perhaps more humorously, not to get on the lions again, but having depression does not make you a Lions fan. But if you're a Lions fan, 
you have depression. All right, so I, I think that one probably hits home a little bit better for most of us. But the point is this. Having good deeds doesn't make you a Christian, but if you are a Christian, then you have good deeds. And that's just the bottom line. And so Scripture can tell us that we ought to live in fear. This is what he says. If you call on him as father, you say he is my heavenly father. Then there ought to be a fear that comes along. That if I do not have the works that show forth that salvation, then I ought to stand in quaking fear of God. Friend, if you can sin and live in sin and it does not bother you, if somebody could ask you the question, what good works is God working in your heart and are you growing in today? If somebody asks you that question and you have no answer to that question, then I really believe we should be living in a fear that shakes. Because one day, every one of us will stand before that judgment bar of God. And you say, well, I prayed a prayer. Uh, you know, I, I believe that I've gone to church. I've, I've done all these sorts of things. I call him Father. I call him Lord. Matthew chapter 7 gives one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. Jesus says that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out many demons? Have we not done many good works in your name? And here's what God's going to say to them. Depart from me. You worker of iniquity. Do you see? You don't have the requisite good works. You may have done some good things, but your lifestyle was such that you were a worker of iniquity. You weren't internally changed. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And then the next phrase, I never knew you. Do you see? The relationship with God leads to a transformation of heart that leads to a transformation of life. And so, if we know the Lord, and if we call on Him as Father, then we respond to Him as a Father. And we live in a reverential fear, knowing and fearing to some degree that if we wander from the path that He has given to us, then we are leaving hope. Now, I believe, just as much as anyone else, that those who are believers cannot lose their salvation. But I also believe that there are some who go out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And Scripture calls us to have an enduring faith, to have one that continues on even in the face of adversity and trouble. And so we stand in fear, not shaking, unless, in fact, there is no uh, good works, that we can stand in confidence before our Father, knowing that this evidence is God's good grace in my life. So the first reason, Peter tells us, that we must fear God is because he is coming as an impartial judge. There's a second reason we should live in reverential fear. And this 
focuses more on the reverential side. This is the side where we are saying, thank you, God, for what you've done. And I put it this way, because you know better, you know that you ought to stand in reverence of this one. I mentioned earlier that fearing God means we come to know him and stand in awe of him. Why should we stand in awe of God? And what Peter does here is he gives us reasons to stand in awe of God. So let me just mention a few of them. One, you know you were redeemed from a fruitless life. This is what he says to us in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed. Ransomed means you were purchased back from a fruitless life. He says, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. He's talking about, he's using language here of being fruitless, of living lives that are wasteful. You were created for a purpose. God put you on this earth for a specific purpose. And it was to bear fruit, to honor him. And yet, sin and the fall of humanity made us fruitless. And do you know what redemption did? Do you know what God did on our behalf? Is he gave us hope. He gave us hope. Do you remember just a little bit ago, Peter tells us, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is hope in the resurrection of Christ. And he's given to us that hope. We are redeemed from a fruitless way of life. A second thing he tells us, you know that in order to get you from the fruitless way of life to a fruitful life, to one that has hope and has a purpose, Christ offered a priceless sacrifice. You'll see this in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see what Peter does here? As he says, as he's making a comparison. He says, you were bought, and you were bought with something really important. And it's not like the passing away things, the things that are in the end worthless, things like silver or gold. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you like to have silver and gold today? I think probably most of us say, you know, that's pretty valuable. I'd take some of that. I like silver and gold. In the ancient world, this was, this was the stuff you sought after. It, it was the commodity that everyone wanted. And Peter says, you were bought with a price, but that price wasn't perishable things. It wasn't silver and gold. But here's what you were bought with. The precious blood of Christ. And he was a lamb without blemish or spot. He's referring back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's saying that Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. There would never be another one like Jesus. He alone could offer that sacrifice. He was the only blameless, perfect lamb. And he came 
and offered himself. He humbled himself to take on flesh. He did all of that to purchase your life. You. To purchase you. And what Peter's saying here is this. Don't you know that the Son of God paid an incredible wage for you? He bought you? Stand in awe of this one who would do such a thing. But there's a third thing, he says, why we ought to stand in awe of this God you know you have become part of the eternal plan of God. And notice this in verse 20. Jesus was foreknown. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. That is, he was revealed in these last times, and don't miss these last three words, for your sake. Here's what Peter's saying. You were bought with a price that's, that's incalculable. You can't even imagine it. So praise the awesomeness of this God. But then also remember that it was in eternity past when the Father made a covenant with the Son that they included you as a member of that. Do you see? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, before the, fo the world was ever created. He was made manifest in these last times for you. So yes, this plan was, step, was set in eternity past. And in this plan was you. Oh, what an incredible thing to think of God's good kindness. And this reminds us that he didn't choose us because of how many good things we were going to do. He chose us before we did anything. He chose us out of his good kindness. This is the God we serve. There's a fourth thing, or a final thing here. You know unequaled glory has been given to Christ at the resurrection. Unequaled glory has been given to Christ at the resurrection. Look with me in verse 20 and then into 21, or actually verse 21. Who through him, that is, through Christ, you have become believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He says this, the eternal plan of God included the fact that Jesus would die and be raised in a glorious resurrection so that you would have hope. Scripture tells us that our hope rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, uh, Paul tells us, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied because there is no salvation. But here's the glorious truth. Jesus rose from the dead. The eternal plan was enacted and completed, and it was completed for your sake. He made that payment for you, and then he rose again for you. Because now I can look at the life of Jesus, and I can look just recently going to Israel, looking at the place where he came out of the grave. And I can say, one day, that's going to be me. Because God did it for him. And then he told me, I'm going to do it for you. Oh, 
could you not praise this one who has given us a gospel like this? So, coming back to the question that we began this whole talk with. Should a believer live in fear? And the answer to that question is yes, if you understand what we mean by fear. The believer should live in fear in this way, that we know the God who has redeemed us. We fear because we never, ever want to walk away from this one, because we know that he is the judge. But that doesn't consume us, because we know that the very one who will one day judge us has also given us promises beyond imagination. He has said that I will judge, but when I stand and I judge you, I will not look at you. I will look at my son. Because you show forth the fruit of righteousness that shows that the Holy Spirit has changed you and made you new. You show forth that you have had the work of my son and my spirit in your heart. You have been the recipient of the eternal plan that we enacted so that you would be different, you would be changed, you would be an elect exile. And now, now we stand before this one who has made all of these promises. And we need not quake in fear, but we should bow in reverence. So fear this one, reverence this one. He is worthy. Father, you are worthy. Lord, I don't know every person in this room. I don't know the state of their heart. Maybe there's someone today that should be shaking in fear because you will one day judge all of humanity. And perhaps they are not sheltered under the righteousness of your son, the Lord Jesus. They have not repented of their sins And one day, as they stand before you, they will have to account for every deed that they have ever done. And Lord, that that very thought frightens me. But I thank you that those who have trusted in in your Son do not have to fear that. For you have promised that your mercy is more. That no matter the depth of our sin, your mercy is greater. And I pray, Father, if there's one today who fears your judgment, that they would seek you out because you have told us that you are loving, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you will not turn away from those who come to you seeking your grace. And Father, for the rest of us, those who know your name, who have been changed by your grace and evidence that by the fruits of good works, We pray that we would never lose a reverence of you. That as we stand thinking of the awesomeness of the gospel that's been declared to us, we would bow before you and sing those words we've sung in this congregation before. You are worthy. We love you, Lord, only because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.